Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 433rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today in part by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the uber-popular Dr. Erica Reamer. As you know from this broadcast, Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. And a very, very good morning to you, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. (laughs) Our lead story this morning is about a memo. It's a memo that CMS posted last week regarding Medicare Advantage organizations and non-contracted providers. Yes, it was a story and sure to get bigger in the weeks to come. Indeed. Reporting our lead story this morning is going to be a friend of yours and, frankly, a friend of everyone in the coding world, and that's Dr. Eddie Hugh. He's the past president of the American College of Physician Advisors. And in his day job, he's system executive director of Physician Advisory Services at UNC. That's uh, University of North Carolina. Indeed. And another friend of coders throughout the U.S. is Rose Dunn. Rose is past president of AHIMA. Rose joins us this morning to report on the best approach to deal with line item claim denials. Welcome back, Rose. You've been missed. Another friend of coders is Lori Johnson. Yes, Lori returns with the Talk 10 Tuesdays coding report. And a friend to so many, including me, is Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. He's like my rabbi. And at these <laughs> days, these very troubling days, it's good to have a rabbi or a friend like nationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, or both, actually. Dr. Moffick is going to be reporting on the mental health of Americans during these cataclysmic times. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What has captured your attention? Now, I'm going to discuss a recent OIG report regarding inappropriate coding of acute strokes in Medicare Advantage enrollees. Ooh, wow. I'm looking forward to hearing your segment. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by Medlar Publishing. 2021 is just around the corner, and MedLearn has the up-to-date resources to guide you through coding, billing, and compliance in the new year. Order before September 30th and save 15% on your 2021 MedLearn Publishing resources using the code REN, R-E-N, 1521 at checkout. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And Medicare pays 75% of disproportionate share hospital or dish payments by allocating each dish hospital's percentage of a pool by the ratio of uncompensated care for that hospital to the uncompensated care for all dish hospitals. For fiscal 2021, CMS is using a single year of data on uncompensated care costs from Worksheet S10 of the hospital's FY 2017 cost reports to distribute these funds. CMS says this is in part because they conducted special audits of this data. In addition, though, for all subsequent years, CMS is adopting a policy under which the most recent available single year of audited worksheet S10 data will be used to distribute uncompensated care payments for all eligible hospitals except Puerto Rico hospitals and Indian Health Service and tribal hospitals. CMS argues that it expects the worksheet S10 data 
for an increasing number of hospitals will be audited for future cost reporting periods. CMS finishes by stating, we have confidence that the best available data in future years will be the worksheet S10 data for the most recent cost reporting year for which audits have been conducted. Here's the big rub, though. Many of the hospitals receiving DISH payments have not had their cost reports recently audited because they're contesting the calculation of the other 25% of the payment, which includes the use of a, the number of Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, days. The number of SSI days is so elusive because only data the CMS gets from the Social Security Administration has been deemed to be allowable by the courts. It does seem to me that once again, instead of simplifying the formula used to compute DISH payments, Medicare has backed themselves into a corner, and the corner gets deeper. The current nominee for the Supreme Court has indicated that it is highly likely she will take the position that the Accountable Care Act is unconstitutional. DISH payments, if the Accountable Care Act is determined to be unconstitutional, would revert to the method used prior to the Accountable Care Act being placed in, into, uh, into service. The uncompensated care allocation pool would be eliminated. So apparently we live in interesting times, and I know this is something that we're going to be talking about more. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's September the 29th, 2020, and you're listening to the 433rd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Gather with your peers to share and learn best practices and effective solutions to build a more connected, accurate, and innovative tomorrow at the AHIMA 20 Virtual Conference. Enjoy interactive networking opportunities, speaking with solution providers, and hearing from industry experts. Topics include clinical coding, clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle management, social determinants of health, and more. Full registrants receive complimentary access to more than 100 session recordings after the event, including CEUs. Learners also have the option to register for the clinical coding track only. Visit conference.ahema.org for more information and to register. Plan to join your peers October 14th through 17th. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Welcome back. Good morning, Chuck. It's great to be back. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. October 1st is right around the corner, and I hope that you are preparing for fiscal year 21 IPPS. I recently had a question emailed to me related to this subject. The question was about new technology add-on payment for the new technology section codes in PCS. It is important to understand that the new technology section in ICD-10 PCS is not equivalent to new technology add-on payment, or also known as NTAP. These concepts are different. The new technology section in ICD-10 PCS is a place where new procedures are found, as well as to capture items for which the new technology add-on payment application has been made. Just because the code is in new technology section does not mean it will will trigger an NTAP payment. A list of NTAP payments will be found um, or can be found in fiscal year 21, or you'll see in my article that's published next week on ICD10Monitor.com. Before October 1st, your assignment, if you choose to accept it, is one, review the list of new technology add-on payments. Two, 
is they identify those substances, procedures, devices that are utilized by your facility. This task may require talking to pharmacy, the operating room, central stores, nursing, etc. After you have identified the items that your facility uses, then identify what the documentation of those items looks like. What documentation will trigger the coder to assign the associated PCS codes? And four is update your facility coding guidelines effective October 1st and maintain a copy of the previous version. This one step of preparation may yield much additional reimbursement for your facility. And Erica, just on another note, I, I want to take a moment and recognize that globally, we have just passed the 1 million deaths, um, deaths due to coronavirus milestone and 200 in the United States. It's a sad milestone to recognize, but back to you. Thank you, Lori. You are completely right. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. We're delighted to have a friend of this broadcast, Rose Dunn, with us this morning. Rose highlights another opportunity for health information professionals in the revenue cycle, this time light item denial. So what is a line item denial? Rose, help me here. Well, thanks, Chuck, for inviting me back to Talk 10, and let's dive into those line item denials. We should expect a lot of denials work over the next year, especially with COVID claims on the radar. Denials come in different flavors, but generally, there is either a full claim denial or a partial claim denial. One partial claim denial is the line item denial. It is one where a specific line of an itemized claim is carved out and denied by the payer for one or more reasons. The line charge is deducted from the total charges, and the payer pays the remainder of the claim in accordance with their contract. The first signal that you may have claims undergoing an intense review with the end goal of identifying line items to deny is when you receive a request for an itemized claim statement. When PFS receives such a request, it should automatically trigger an alert to your denials team, which should always, always include a coding professional. That itemized statement is often given to a third-party review entity engaged by the payer. Their only purpose is to, after the fact, determine that services were unnecessary in their clinical opinion. Line item denials are not used for all payer contracts. This type of denial is more prevalent when a payer's contract is based on a percent of charges or has a case rate provision. If the payer's contract is based on a case rate such as APC or DRG or on a per diem arrangement, the use of line item denials is of no benefit for the payer since they're committed to pay the established flat rate for the APC or the DRG or other condition-specific service, such as a flat rate for a normal delivery. However, case rate contracts may include a stop-loss clause. This is a clause that says when build charges reach a certain threshold, the payer will either pay the flat rate plus a percent of charges above a certain dollar amount, or instead of paying the flat rate, the payer will pay a percent of charges. If the stop-loss clause is triggered, itemized bills will be requested, 
and the slashing of line item services may occur, with one of the primary goals being to get the amount of charges under that stop-loss threshold so the payer is not required to pay any additional amounts. As denial specialists, our HIM and coding professionals can rally the physicians involved to contribute to the content of a well-crafted appeal letter that supports the rationale for each of those services. Earlier, I suggested that PFS alert us to an itemized claim request. This was to allow us time to identify the physicians involved in the case in advance of and in anticipation of a denial. Our timeline for submitting an appeal is often 30 to 45 days before the denied services are permanently denied. So every hour counts. Without monitoring line item denials, hospitals could sacrifice 5 to 10% of their expected net revenue. That's net revenue. That's a big chunk of greenbacks. Remember, net revenue is the real amount of dollars the hospital expects to receive. Roughly 65% of these denials are appealable. So for those of you in the audience that consider yourself tenacious, enjoying partnering with physicians to support the rationale for the care they delivered, and have a desire to help maintain the organization's bottom line, leading or participating in the management of line item denials is worth it. Back to you, Erica. Thank you very much, Rose. That was very interesting. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is past president of AHIMA and the chief operating officer of First Class Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, uh, Erica. And Rose, thank you very much for that very interesting report. So a question for you. Are you feeling a sense of helplessness during these chaotic times? Well, if so, you're not alone, as you're going to discover. When nationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick joins us in just 60 seconds. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. It's a broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. Stand by. Dramatic, constant change is the new norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you have to adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. Conferences have been canceled from coast to coast, yet it's as important as ever to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now you can get continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor Webcasts covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. See if an ICD-10 Monitor subscription is right for you. Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. Joining us now for the Tucked in Tuesday Mental Health Report is one of America's foremost psychiatrists, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. Listen, we are living really in chaotic times, and this has got to be having an impact on our collective mental health. Chuck, you are certainly right. And we discussed that in depth in today's ICD-10 monitor, and indeed, all measures of mental distress, including ICD diagnoses, have been increasing, and especially anxiety and depressive feelings. Actually, finding the appropriate degree of those feelings for what is going on is the challenge we all have. Moreover, as you also pointed out to me when we were discussing today's session, there may be certain populations that are of higher risk, but often neglected because it is hard for them to speak up for themselves. As Gandhi once said, quote, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members, end of quote. 
In that regard, we are not measuring up very well in the United States during the coronavirus. Those tripping on the cracks more silently have been those with intellectual and developmental disabilities who surely can't take care of themselves for the most part. These include those on the autism spectrum, those with intellectual limitations, and those with Alzheimer's disease. Let's focus on them now. Take this example. In a suburb of Detroit, Hisset's 19-year-old child, Alex, has autism and has been enrolled in a post-secondary school program. Then the school shut down suddenly in March. Hisset said, quote, Alex immediately began falling apart without the structure of school. He would just ask for school over and over and go over to his tablet and hit the image for school constantly. He didn't understand what was happening. And as the months progressed, his behavior got worse. We had to put him in the hospital for a few days recently, end of quote. Another end of the age spectrum, here's another example from a nurse on the front line. Quote, a lot of these patients are elderly and have dementia. They're wondering why they have this blue gown on and these goggles and this face mask, and there's no human contact anymore, and they're there for weeks. It's really scary for them, end of quote. There are at least five major problems for such children and adults. One, many have lost access to trained caregivers or community service providers. Two, a disproportionate impact of social distancing for those needing proximity to caregivers and loved ones, which extends to the help needed with electronic resources. Three, inequalities in education across the lifespan. Four, the limitations of telehealth due to verbal limitations in communication. And five, hurdles to transportation for testing and medical care. The numbers of such people are not small. One of every six Americans are involved. They also have more diseases that make them vulnerable to the virus. Advocacy is needed for their special needs. Mobilization of funds is part of that, especially for home-based services. Civil rights complaints may be necessary to get compensatory services. In the meanwhile, creativity by educators can help. One example started a YouTube channel. There she can sing favorite songs of the disabled students, such as Shake Your Sillies Out, in order to help students feel a sense of familiarity while they were learning online. To this teacher's surprise, some of her students were doing miraculously better at home compared to school. The challenge is to fill the cracks with teachers and healthcare providers developing creative alternatives. Then we can claim that we are contributing to making America great once again. Over to you, Erica. Thanks, Steve. I actually have a friend who's experiencing exactly what you're talking about. It's a really big problem. That was nationally renowned Dr. H. Stephen Muffick. We're proud that Dr. Muffick is the Talk 10 Tuesday's resident psychiatrist. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you so very much, Dr. Moffick. And be sure to read my exclusive interview with Dr. Moffick. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Our lead story this morning is about recent action taken by CMS as it relates to Medicare Advantage organizations and non-contracted providers. To explain the coding significance of this new directive, particularly as it relates to clinical validation denials, this is Dr. Edward Hugh, and good morning, Dr. Hugh. What do we need to know? Well, thank you, Chuck. In a recent memo, CMS bluntly reminded all Medicare Advantage organizations of their responsibilities to non-contracted providers when making any decision to deny services in whole or in part, including the type or level of services. While providers who have signed contracts with Medicare Advantage organizations have waived any CMS-granted appeal rights, non-contracted providers must be afforded a five-step appeals process. 
The root issue is that many Medicare Advantage organizations did not consider partial denials as appealable via the formal CMS appeals pathway and were not granting access to this pathway even when specifically requested. During a pre-pandemic meeting in Washington, D.C. with senior CMS officials, Drs. Brian Moore, Lisa Banker, and myself had our interpretation of CMS regulations confirmed. What many non-contracted providers were experiencing was not allowed by CMS. Specifically, CMS has long-standing regulations that require any denial, including a partial denial, to contain both a written rationale for denial and how to appeal the denial using the CMS appeals process. A non-contracted provider is granted access to the CMS appeals process upon executing a, quote, waiver of liability, unquote, form. If the plan-determined Level 1 appeal is not fully favorable, then the plan bears the responsibility to automatically forward the entire case file to CMS's Level 2 reviewer, the independent review entity. However, in our experiences, non-contracted provider appeals were being upheld and never exited the firewall of the plan, or in many cases, the plan's hired subcontractor. DRG coding downgrades and clinical validation denials are two common examples of partial denials that in many cases were not being afforded CMS appeal rights. When a plan disagrees with a non-contract provider over a principal diagnosis assignment, coding guidelines, or the definitions of clinical diagnoses in a manner which reduces payment to the provider, it must offer a written explanation of its findings and notify you of your right to formal CMS appeal. The written notice must outline the appeal process with instructions on how to appeal. There can be no alternative appeals process, and there can be no recoupment of money by the plan unless the notification to the non-contracted provider contains these proper elements in writing. Further, when a subcontractor of the plan, called a delegated entity, issues a denial or partial denial, it must adhere to the same written notice standards as if the plan were denying you directly. The Medicare Managed Care Manual makes that clear. The subcontractor cannot keep a non-contracted provider in an internal appeals loop just because the, quote, parent plan, unquote, was not directly involved. A denial from the plan or its subcontractor must describe immediate access to the CMS appeals process. Simply put, the regulations must be followed. I encourage listeners to read the articles and listen to other podcasts on Rack Monitor and ICD-10 Monitor to learn more about this unprecedented CMS memo. Over to you, Erica. Thanks, Eddie. That was my friend, Dr. Edward Hugh. Dr. Hugh is the past president of the American College of Physician Advisors. Eddie is also System Executive Director of Physician Advisory Services at UNC Health, University of North Carolina. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Dr. Hugh, thank you so very much for an excellent report. And for more information on this very timely topic, be sure to read today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesdays, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, let's hear from you now. Well, in preparation to see my doctor, I have the opportunity to request edits to my chart. The provider must review and verify, and only they can actually make the changes. I don't still have right wrist pain, nor the ganglion cyst that elicited that symptom. Delete. Because there is no good personal history of code that would be useful to anyone. A while ago, I made them take off the code for melanoma of the right lower limb, and replace it with Z85.820, personal history of malignant melanoma of skin. Newsflash, most providers don't know coding 
and frankly, they don't want to. They refer to chronic conditions as past medical history of, and they probably aren't even aware that there are codes titled personal history of. They blindly go where their EHR leads them, and if no one gives them negative feedback, they will continue to do so. As long as their diagnosis rewards them with their professional fee, they're okay. Whose responsibility is it to curate the problem list? Do specialists eliminate signs and symptom codes when they make definitive diagnoses? Can the PCP make specialists' diagnoses historical when appropriate? Is it reasonable to expect doctors to invest the time to keep all of their patients' lists up to date and current? When does a diagnosis become historical? On September 16th, the Office of Inspector General, OIG, released a report entitled Incorrect Acute Stroke Diagnosis Codes Submitted by Traditional Medicare Providers Resulting in Millions of Dollars in Increased Payments to Medicare Advantage Organizations. The investigation revealed that patients who transition from traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage, a payment system based on hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs, often had acute stroke diagnoses associated with their risk adjustment score, or RAS, submitted on provider claims. This erroneously inflated the RAS and resulted in overpayments to the MA organizations to the tune of $14 million extrapolated. Acute strokes might start in the doctor's office prior to transport to a hospital and continue upon admission. Upon leaving the hospital, the acute phase concludes and in follow-up, they have a history of stroke. If it was without residua, they have a Z86.7 code, depending on the type of cerebrovascular accident. If it resulted in neurologic deficit, they have some I69 code, which incorporates specificity of type of stroke and resultant deficit. For HCC, calculation is really important to capture the residua or sequelae especially if it is motor-related like hemi or monoplegia or paresis. The risk adjustment factor or RAF of those exceed the RAF of an acute stroke. Do not feel guilty picking up this code every time it is documented. Having a hemiparesis is impactful. It leaves a patient with fall risk, often requiring assisted devices or assistance with ADLs. The provider must monitor that it is stable. The acute stroke counts for the following year only. The residua should last a lifetime unless medical advances are made that can resolve hemiplegia. Of course, it is only calculated into the RAS if the provider documents it appropriately. The OIG report found that over 99% of the coded acute strokes were not clinically valid. Almost half of the 580 patients should have had a personal history code instead. The financial implication of the invalid HCC 100 was $1,826 per enrollee. 16 out of 580 cases missed the sequela of hemiplegia or monoplegia, which resulted in underpayments from CMS to the MA organizations. Although I am often skeptical of the assessments of the OIG and other auditors, I am not in this case. I believe it is likely that providers failed to evolve the diagnosis from acute stroke to personal history without sequela or to the appropriate code signifying the sequela. I would wager it was due to ignorance 
or difficulty navigating their EHR list to find the correct codes, as opposed to malevolence. It also could be a copy-and-paste misadventure. In any case, what to do? Start an outpatient CDI program. Do a prospective second-level review of every I-60 to I-63 code that is not the principal diagnosis to ensure that it really is an acute stroke. Educate your providers to use personal history codes and to pick up sequelae. Help them set up favorites in your EHR. If you do respective, I'm sorry, retrospective reviews, prepare to self-disclose and give money back. And if you find a provider who is doing this intentionally to increase HCC payments, report them to compliance. Read my article in ICD-10 Monitor for more details. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. We do have that copy of the CMS memo. We'll make sure that everybody gets it. That's going to be a wrap for our 433rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, Dr. Edward Hugh, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And one more thing before we go, tonight is the first of three scheduled presidential debates between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. And with the election on November 30, if we already haven't done so, today might be a very good day to register to vote in the upcoming election. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk to Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's free. And when you do, give us a rating. Thank you very much. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck speaking for ICD-10 Modern Talk to Tuesday. Thank you for being with us. Have a good day, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.